Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mangosutu Butelezi was a chief among the Zulus, South Africa's largest ethnic group. But as political transition was on the horizon, it became clear that he had aspirations for much more. Our obituaries editor reflects on his life. And this month, there have been reports of two high-profile prison escapes on both sides of the Atlantic. High-profile mostly because they've actually become pretty rare. But it might have got you wondering, how do you escape from prison? First up, though... Kiev is a very beautiful city anyway, but in September, when people are out and about, it looks absolutely glorious, the sun reflected in the golden cupolas of St. Michael's Cathedral, where the bells are ringing. Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia and Eastern Europe editor. His reporting on the long war facing Ukraine is the cover package in this week's edition of The Economist. The only sign of war which is visible there are the carcasses of Russian tanks and APCs, rusty. This is the trophies brought from the front. And people walk around them, take photographs. And the only thing that reminds you of the war, other than that, is occasional air raid sirens. And they're like a toothache. And it's a very dull and horrible sound, which a lot of people, not just in Kyiv, but across Ukraine, have gotten used to. When people hear air raid sirens during the day, they actually don't go into shelters. They just carry on about their life and their business. There are people sitting in restaurants. We saw dancers on the street. And it's a very strong feeling, actually, of this people who want to enjoy life and who want to live their life as fully as they can. And when I talked to Valery Zaluzhny, the commander of Ukrainian forces, asking him, how does he feel about the fact that Kyiv looks so normal when the war is actually going on only a few hundred miles away. He surprised me with his answer. He said, this is exactly what we're fighting for. I just want people to have a normal life in the whole of Ukrainian territory. And that's a very, very powerful feeling because Ukrainians know what they want. They want a peaceful, normal life. They never chose this war. So on the streets, things appear almost normal, but... Do you get the sense that people are forgetting about the war? No, absolutely not. The war is very present. I was in Kyiv in 2015. This was immediately after Russia's annexation of Crimea, when the war in the east started as well. And at that time, Kyiv did feel quite isolated. War was very, very far away. It's completely different this time. Everybody in Kyiv, everybody in Ukraine, has lost a family member, a friend. It has affected an entire country. 
And this is why Vitaly Klitschko, the Kiev man, he called this air of normalcy an illusion. It's an illusion because uh, the, any second uh, the Russian rockets, kamikaze uh, drone, can attack our hometown. During last year in our city, uh, Russian uh, missiles killed more than 180 civilians and seven children. And 800 buildings was destroyed. It's actually a lot of damages. And Klitschko, like many people in his city, also expects the winter to be much more difficult with Russia targeting energy infrastructure. Ukrainians are getting on with their lives, but you feel the sense of tiredness setting in. And Arkady, does this signal a new phase of the war? Absolutely, Ori. It does mean that the war is moving into a new phase. When the war started, the first days, the first weeks, the first months were very much driven by people coming together, by improvisation, uh, a network nation, if you like, more reliant on itself than on the state or anybody else, really coming together in this patriotic national war moment. And of course, patriotism is still there, but it's absolutely clear that in order to stay in this war, they need something else. The system has to change. It has to be more of a hierarchical army. It has to have more manpower. It has to have more shells. It has to have more industrial military production. It requires a different type of resilience. Resilience in politics, in the alignment between politicians and military, in economy and society. Because what we've seen in Ukraine only too often is that at the moment of threat, Ukrainians come together. And they've done so before in 2014 when they overthrew Viktor Yanukovych, the Moscow-backed thuggish president. But the flip side of it is that as soon as threat disappeared, many Ukrainians just went home. They dispersed. And this time, they can't afford to do that. What kind of things are we talking about here? What is threatening to divide Ukraine along political lines? It's very interesting. The thing which Ukrainians identify as number one threat internally, they say corruption. Of course, trust in the armed forces and trust in the president is extremely high. But when you ask people, are there politicians, are there leaders capable of transforming Ukraine and running the country efficiently? Increasing number of Ukrainians say no, they can't see that. And also the perception of corruption is absolutely vital, not just for Ukrainians to give them a sense of what they're fighting against and for. It's also very important for the Western partners because they want to see Ukraine as an effective and a reliable partner, not just a dependent. And I think some of the changes that we've seen over the past few weeks, particularly the appointment of Rustem Omerov, the new defense minister, but also his team and people working with him, suggests that this is exactly what Zelensky also wants. I think at the center of it is the idea of preserving people's lives. And that's what makes it so different from Russia, where, of course, life is extremely cheap, at least to Vladimir Putin. And he treats his people as cannon fodder. Putin presides over a dictatorship. Zelensky is a democratically elected leader who really does care about his people. And just on this topic of preserving human lives, how is Ukraine coping with the human loss? And will they still be able to find troops as the war drags on? Just imagine. These are people living in a normal European city in Kyiv leading absolutely normal lives, okay? They're sitting in cafes, they're chatting to their friends, and yet 
they know that they might have to be conscripted, that they will actually have to go and fight, they'll have to go and kill, and they might die or at least get injured. And this is a horrific idea in 2023. It's actually mind-boggling. There have been a lot of volunteers, and that stream of volunteers has dried up. And I think this is actually one of the sources of tension now in Ukraine. It's actually very tangible. All you need to do is go to the Kyiv railway station and see a train arriving from Kramatorsk. That's pretty much the front line. And bringing back men who are on leave or on rotation or who've been injured. So I met one of those men, a young, extremely intelligent and articulate man called Roman Hasko, who is a medic in the 18 Airborne Assault Brigade, who'd been released for a week to see his family in the west of Ukraine. And I asked him, what does he feel when he sees this peaceful life carry on? And what does he see in all this man and women walking around? And this is what he told me. Mm, I feel few emotions. First of all, disappointment. Because I have many free positions in my unit where there were people before, but they could be wounded, they could be sick, they could be old. They could have some family situation. And uh, for effectiveness, if we're talking about winning of this war, these all empty uh, lines must be filled with names. And with good names, with healthy names, with healthy soldiers, with uh, good men. And for all the technological innovation, it is manpower that is crucial in a war of this kind. And filling those empty lines that Roman has talked about is getting much, much harder. Arkady, more than shells, more than soldiers going to the front, do you get the sense that Ukraine has the the mental resilience or preparedness to stay in this war? I think Ukrainians do have it in them. On the one hand, Ukrainians do have resilience, and they do look to the future. On the other hand, let's not underestimate the extraordinary toll, both physical and psychological, that this war has taken on these people. Because there is trauma, there is anger. And we talked about this to Alyona Zelenska, Ukraine's first lady, and she's been leading a mental health initiative under the title TIAK, which means how are you? Like, how are you really? First days, first weeks, first month, it was adrenaline. Uh, we had to run and run quickly and it helped and then we had to stop and remind ourselves and recall uh, what we wanted and what we want to see in the future so it, it is the uh, more more difficult uh, task to how to, how to keep ourselves and how to uh, stand uh, for a long time. And that resilience, it's every bit as important as what's happening on the battlefield, because what's happening on the battlefield, as Zaluzhny told us at the beginning, is only worth fighting for if people can have a normal life. Arkady, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ori. Arkady's reporting from Ukraine will feature in one of the first episodes of The Weekend Intelligence, our new show coming to Economist Podcast Plus from next month. You'll need to subscribe to listen to it and to our host of other specialist shows such as Babbage and Drum Tower. Not this one, though. 
our weekday episodes of The Intelligence will still be free for everyone. If you're already an Economist subscriber, thank you. You're already covered by your existing plan. But if you're not a subscriber yet, listen up. You can get a year-long subscription for half price, so about $2 a month, if you sign up for Economist Podcast Plus before October 17th. So if I've enticed you enough, you can head to our show notes to find out more. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. When he was 14, Mangosutu Butelezi was handed a ceremonial spear called an assegai, and he drove it into the ground. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. In doing this, he was claiming his inheritance because his father had just died. He made quite a few claims that were sometimes queried by other people, such as, for example, claiming to be a prince when in fact the royal family was very large and most other people of similar standing didn't use the title prince. But he made the most he could of it. What was not in question was that in the years when South Africa was making its tortuous progress towards democracy, Butelezi was by far the most powerful man in KwaZulu, which was a poor rump of a place which had been granted a sort of nominal independence under apartheid. It was a shadow of its former self, but all the same, he was the man who wielded power in it. The Asagai also remained important. It became the symbol of the Encarta Party, which he founded in 1975, a right-wing conservative party. It was also the symbol of the greatest Zulu victory that had ever been, the greatest moment in their history, the Battle of Izandluana in 1879, when a force of Zulus wielding assegais had demolished the British army. And this was made into a film called Zulu in 1964, in which Mr. Butelezi actually starred as the king of the time, the Zulu king, wearing the full regalia of the leopardskin cape, and the cowhide shield, and of course the assegai, and he loved this role. Somewhat later, in 1992, the authorities in South Africa tried to calm the place down by forbidding the carrying of deadly weapons during marches and rallies, and he protested loudly, saying that assegais were a cultural symbol, they were what Zulus were all about, they were actually what the power of their arms was for. His creed, however, as he always insisted, was non-violence. He was a conservative and one in the mould of Edmund Burke, that is, he rejected revolution, and especially the Marxist revolution proposed by his great political rivals, the African National Congress. He was also a Christian, and, as he often said, a Christian could not condone violence. 
He was an active Anglican. He even went to synod. And he was a lover of music. He was a lover of poetry. He had his bookshelves stuffed with biographies of people of which Gandhi was a favorite. And in all these ways, he tried to persuade people that he was certainly no threat. The main trouble with him, though, was that KwaZulu, the region that he was the ruler of, in effect, was simply too small a stage for him. His ambitions were national, and that meant he had to work with whichever group was in power at the time, which meant, much as he loathed apartheid, that he had to work with the white regime. To get that sort of power, however, he had to deal with the African National Congress, the ANC, which was becoming steadily more powerful. He joined with them for a while, till about 1979, in an alliance which was rather fragile because he found the ANC riven with Marxists. And he also wanted to lead this whole alliance and found that he wasn't welcome to do so. Gradually, violence grew worse and worse in the townships. And he decided that he would actually involve the white authorities in training black special forces to root out what he called terrorists and what they called terrorists, by which they meant the ANC working in the townships. These black special forces were known as the Caprivi 200, and they carried out most of the atrocities during the violence which went on, really until the election in 1994 and even a little bit before then. According to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up once South Africa had found its way to democracy, it was militant groups aligned with Inkata, Butelezi's party, who had done most of the killings. 20,000 people were killed overall. But Butelezi always objected to that and said, no, it was not him, that the ANC had actually instigated much of the violence. So there was no love lost between these groups when finally, after the 1994 elections, Mandela swept into power with two-thirds of the vote and became South Africa's first black president. So Butelezi agreed to join the National Unity Government and he took the portfolio, was given the portfolio of home affairs, which he didn't really care about very much and which soon became a byword for corruption. In 2004, he decided, however, that he would stop serving in the government and join the opposition. It seemed a more natural place to be. And from that point on, he gradually found his power fading. In the elections of 2014, he won only 10% of the vote in KwaZulu-Natal, which was the new name for KwaZulu province. And he won only a little over 2% nationwide. At his funeral in Ulundi, the old capital of KwaZulu, his mourners and supporters turned out in force, many of them wearing traditional leopard-skin cloaks, carrying the cowhide shields. What was not seen so much, in fact hardly at all, was the asagai, the symbol above all else of Mr. Butelezi, when he was at the peak of his power. on Mangosutu Butelezi, who has died aged 95. 
In recent weeks, Britain and the US have both been gripped by the tales of two separate prison escapes. Chris MP co-edits The Intelligence and has written a history of Brixton Prison in London. One concerned a man called Daniel Khalif. He allegedly broke out of HMP Wandsworth, which is this big Victorian institution in London. That was on September the 6th, and a few days later he was charged with escaping custody. And the court was told that Mr Khalif may have used bedsheets to tie himself to the underside of a delivery van that was leaving the prison. He's denied the charges against him. And then there was Daniello Calvacante. He escaped from Chester County Prison in Pennsylvania. He did so by wedging himself between two prison walls and climbing up them like a crab. Prison breaks certainly in Britain have fallen precipitously since the 1990s. And that's largely the result of new technology. So you've got scanners at the gates, cameras cover every corner of the prison estate. And the more escapes happen, the more that the prison authorities get canny about them. Escapes, though, are clearly still possible. But how? This was the last 100 metres of my journey into work for about nine years. We're walking towards the entrance of Brixton Prison. We've got the wall on our left. It's about 25 feet high. 800 men on the other side, all doing a prison sentence. Let me tell you about this wall we're actually walking past. It goes up for about 17 feet, then it stops, and there's a brand new row of bricks, or I say new. They're actually really old, but they're a different colour. So when the prison opened, it's London's oldest prison, people were just climbing over the wall. So they had to build another eight rows of bricks on the top to try and stop them doing it. It didn't work, and people have carried on escaping from this prison as the decades have gone on. I helped set up prison radio in HMP Brixton back in 2009. I had an office that looked over A-wing exercise yard, so twice a day the men would get let out of their cells, go and do a bit of exercise. And one day I saw this guy, he had this yellow and blue Harlequin suit on. What is he wearing that for? So I made a few investigations, turned out he was a high-risk escapee. And he was made to wear the suit to identify him as such to the rest of the prison staff. The thing about prison is you have very few resources, but you have a lot of time to think about what to do with them. People are really ingenious. For example, cooking in a kettle is an art. I've tasted some very good banoffee pie in my time in Brixton Prison. And people's ingenuity is really well exemplified by one prison escape in 1980. They built a wing just over the other side of this wall. Brixton at that point was taking high security prisoners. They got a team of crack soldiers, put them in the prison wing and challenged them to break out. They couldn't do it. A few months later, three prisoners did what they couldn't. They used a table leg, a broom head and a radiator cap to fashion a drill. They used paint, cardboard and tape to hide damage to the 17-inch thick walls that they drilled through. Fortunately for the escapees, unfortunately, for the prison, someone had left some scaffolding which they used to help get them over the prison wall. When you're escaping from prison, it really helps to have help from the outside. 
There was a case in the early 90s, two IRA prisoners who literally shot their way out of Brixton because someone from Ireland posted a gun hidden in a training shoe that just went straight into the prison. We're standing right by Sea Wing. We're, what, 20 metres away? We're right by the wall. Think how easy it is to throw over something. When I was in Brixton, they once found a dead pigeon which had drugs sewn into it, which someone had just chucked over this perimeter. We're looking down this passageway now. We're on the other side of the prison. It's a big steel grey set of gates at the end. That's the main delivery entrance to the prison. Just hear some more shouts over there now. In the 80s, about 20 men got hold of a delivery van and rammed their way out. And one of the prisoners used a gun. They thought it was a gun. It was actually made out of soap and coloured with black boot polish to hold off the prison officers. There were loads of escapes from Brixton Prison in the 80s. One of them went down in folklore. There were a group of low-security prisoners and they found out that they'd actually been getting out through a skylight and over the wall every night using a ladder made of overalls. But the key thing was that they came back, so they always made sure they were back by 5 o'clock in the morning. There were maybe 20, 30 of them. They'd just do it on a rotor basis. What a great alibi. You committed this crime? No, I was locked up in Brixton Prison. After they actually discovered it, they quizzed them, but they never found out how long it had been going on for. With every escape, the prison authorities, wherever they are, get wiser. But they're hampered by the age of the buildings and some very demotivated staff. HMP Wandsworth is 172 years old. It's rat-infested, it's crumbling. And on the day Mr Khalif allegedly escaped, 40% of the staff, at some 80 individuals, hadn't turned up for work, many claiming sickness. And prisons are challenging places to carry out your job. You're dealing with people who are dangerous, they aren't well, and the staff aren't really paid enough for the difficult job that they do do. And no matter how good the procedures, how good the technology, people who are resourceful are always going to be able to exploit those kind of weaknesses. That said, as recent escapees may attest, they count for little if it lasts for just a handful of days. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, and with extra production help this week from Emily Elias, Benji Guy, Peter Granitz, and Maggie Kadifa. Our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane. We'll all see you back here on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual 
Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.